24-7. That's the number of hours in the day and days in the week that New Yorkers traditionally have had and want their subways to be open. But during the pandemic, the MTA closed the subway from 1 to 5 a.m. for cleaning and disinfecting to make the subway safer and give riders the confidence they need to return to the system. But the MTA is on a path back to full service. This was only one response to a pandemic and recession that ravaged the MTA as it did other public services. The MTA is the lifeblood of the region's economy and often our individual lives. It was hit incredibly hard by the pandemic. Its revenues plummeted as ridership declined and dedicated taxes slumped with the economy. Its workers bravely showed up and served other essential workers and then those returning to their offices. And planned and sorely needed capital investment was temporarily dramatically reduced. Now, with a massive infusion of federal funds and slowly returning ridership, the MTA is fiscally stable for the near and midterm and serving more and more riders. And funds will start to be available to accelerate the capital investment need, but we're still far from out of the woods. In this episode of What's the Data Point, we listen to my recent conversation with two leaders who will chart and manage the course forward for the MTA. Interim President of New York City Transit, Sarah Feinberg, and MTA Chief Development Officer and President of Construction and Development, Jano Lieber. They provide an in-depth look at what the past year was like and their lessons learned. What will the next few years look like and what's the MTA's path forward? What level of services would the MTA provide in the short term and in the long run? Will it have the resources to fund its ambitious capital plan and what are the projects most in need? As well as, what are the opportunities to increase the operating efficiency so the MTA can be financially stable once the federal funds are exhausted? We will be back very soon with our next episode, hosted by Ben Max and my predecessor and good friend, the incomparable Coward Kellerman. But in the meantime, please keep sending your ideas to Ben and myself at TweetBenMax and at Andrew S. Ryan. Keep abreast of the latest news and fiscal analysis at GothamGazette.com and at CBCUNY.org. So welcome, the two of you. Thank you very much. Um, we usually end like certain things with lightning rounds. I'd like to ask a short question if we can in the beginning, if that's okay with you. And that would be, could you share with us, just opening up, one or two things you learned over the last year that might help um, us manage the system going forward, if, if you have any of that. Why don't I turn to Jano first, since I've known you longer and I could put you on the spot e- easier. Um, so Jano, thank you very much and welcome. So what what you learn? I, I think there are two points that I would make. One is, and it goes to the heart of what the CBC's mission is, and I just want to start by saying, you know, when New York is, you know, having challenges, one of the great things about New York is the constellation of civic organizations and engage people who don't actually work in government that help us solve problems, get back on our feet. We've seen it again and again. CBC still represents the gold standard of that kind of civic organization, and we're lucky to have you participating in the conversation. A shout out to you know Carol Kellerman, your predecessor, and the great leadership that CBC has had. And we all want to be back at the Pierre next year, if God willing, it's possible. Um, I think what we found out is that the MTA um, would, you know, had a double hit uh, because of the way it's financed. We are more dependent on fare box revenue. Our, our business model is more dependent on fare box revenue than every other transit system in the United States, save one. And that used to be considered a, a sign of good management and responsible. We're using user fees to self-finance and so on. That became you know, one of the reasons that we entered into crisis economically almost immediately. And then the other reality is that our other subsidies 
are dependent on economic activity. So those two things meant that the MTA most, almost immediately was in financial crisis. You all know about it. We were losing $200 million a week. It was We were bailed out by hometown hero Chuck Schumer and, uh, and the New York delegation and, and congressional leadership um, with $14 billion over three different bills. But it reminds us that we, you know, Federal support is a necessary lifeline, but we have to make sure that as we come back, we have an economic model that is capable of withstanding you know, some of the, the new realities. The second thing that I learned is how lucky we are to have our um, kind of passionate, civically-minded union construction workforce. Because when transit infrastructure was declared essential, they showed up every day in the pan during the pandemic, just like the MTA's workforce. And we were able to keep, you know, to take advantage of the fact that we had less uh, people riding the system to actually get more projects completed on a dollar basis than any other year in MTA history. You know, so we had, you know, incredible productivity. We never had more than seven or eight percent of our projects shut down because of COVID. We instituted safe work practices and the workforce showed up, you know, as they did after 9-11. And this was just as heroic. And, I, you know, we're all indebted to the transit workers that Sarah leads. But I also want to shout out to the, the union construction workers um, who, who, you know, who have a, a kind of a civic spirit that came through in this pandemic. Thank you, General. We'll come back to, to how, how that w worked. I think that's very interesting what you've learned construction-wise. And uh, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, I was fascinated about how much you did get done. Sarah, what are, what are one or two things you learned over the last year that uh, we should take carrying forward? Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And it's great to see you again. And um, hard to believe that the last time I saw you in person, we were in that green room, not wearing masks and um, contemplating what was to come. Um, so a couple of things I think I've learned during over the last year. First, um, thank you for your comments about about the MTA workforce. One of the things I've learned is that there's no better workforce in the country than this workforce. Um, certainly essential workers and showing up day in and day out, but really taking sort of of their sense of um, of public service seriously and, and realizing that they were really in so many moments over the last year, the ones that literally carried the city on their backs um, to get to the other side of this thing, not that we're there yet, but that we're getting close. And so the, the resilience and the um, dependability and the, the just, um, you know, um, performance of this workforce has been unbelievable. Um, you know, Resilient too. I mean, I, I think this system has been has been unbelievably resilient. We've asked so much of the workforce. We've asked so much of everyone who works here. We've asked so much of this of this system, and it's just pounded through this pandemic, day after day. And it, it's been um, an honor to be a part of it. I guess the other thing I've learned is, you know, this is a 55,000 person workforce. This is a massive, you know, MTA is a, is a massive agency, uh, largest system in North America, lots of moving parts and a huge bureaucracy. Uh, and I don't say that necessarily in a negative way. It's just a huge entity. And there, I would never have dreamt that this, that this bureaucracy or this agency could move quickly on anything. You know, my experience on the board was that it's a, it's a, um, a wonderful agency that does that does important work every day, but it's we're not quick about it. You know, we don't turn on a dime. But one thing we learned in this pandemic is actually this agency can turn on a dime. It can turn very quickly when it has to, uh, and you know, when everybody can come together, you know, we can do things like 
shut the system down overnight, every night, uh, you know, which we've never done in 100 years, but we did, you know, pretty darn well the first night and beautifully the second night. And by the third night, we were perfect. Um, and we've been perfect ever since. And, um, you know, when we have had little mini crises come up, you know, we've realized that we can move really quickly to address them. You know, when we have to figure out how to distribute PPE to every single employee and make sure that they've got enough to get them through the week or the two weeks of the month, we can do it on a dime. And so uh, part of what I learned is is uh, that ripping the Band-Aid off and just saying we're going forward in 72 hours is the way to go and this agency can can respond fantastic and important and, and important lesson going forward when um there are challenges ahead um sarah why don't we start with you in terms of level setting where we are now could you just go through with us how low ridership went where you where we are now and what you project in the future how quickly it comes back and also if you can talk a little about what rush hour looks like is it the same or different Sure. Um, so in the darkest days at the heights of the pandemic, we were at I want to say five, six percent ridership. Um, the, the, you know, we we definitely got to a point where I didn't think that the numbers could go any lower, and then they kept going lower. Um, and you know, some of you may have been in the system uh, every day at that time. I certainly was. I know Jano uh, was as well. And the place was desolate. I mean, it was literally MTA workers, uh, you know, nurses, doctors, pharmacists, um, a couple construction workers, and you know, grocery store workers, and that was about it. So um, it was extremely desolate. And we're now, you know, we've been steadily chipping away at it. Um, we're at about, on the subway, we're at about 31, 32% ridership. On buses, we've come back uh, farther and faster. We're at 50-ish percent ridership. Um, you know, I think, honestly, we hit a high yesterday on the subways, or I'm sorry, two days ago on the subways. Frankly, if this were not uh, the week of Passover and Easter and spring break and kids not going to school uh, and people, you know, some people traveling, I frankly think we probably would have hit... 2 million, uh, either at the end of last week or the beginning of this week. And, and maybe we still will, but, uh, but it's feeling a little empty out there right now during, during, um, during this holiday season. Um, so look, I think we're, we're chipping away at it all the time and we are back at, um, nearly full service. We've had a, a debate over the last several weeks, couple of months about, you know, with ridership down at, in the thirties, should we be right-sizing service? Should we be t changing service for the next six months, for the next year so that we're running less service that's ref more reflective of you know the number of people who are riding and I'm, I'm glad to be able to say this morning that we've sort of taken that debate off the table for now. We've decided that we're going to continue to run full service. And in fact, we're going to, you know, the two lines that have been a little off of full service, the C and the F, we're now going to bring back to full service. I think that's the right thing to do to make sure that all of our C and F riders uh, are getting as, you know, as much service as they possibly can and as much social distance as possible. It'll take us several weeks to bring C and, the C and the F back. The F will come back first and then the, the C afterwards. But you know, that sets us back at 100% at full service. And I think that's the right place to be as we do our part to bring the city back, to bring the economy back. Um, you know, I think the reality is, is um, you know, if there's not a transit system that is safe and running efficient service and running a lot of service to greet the city as it comes back, we're going to struggle. And so we're going to make sure we do our part to, to help bring the city back. Thanks very much. We're going to come back to that in a second, but I want to bring Jano back uh, for a second and talk about the um, last year, as we, as we, were, as you said and alluded to. I'd like to understand a little more. What did you get done? This was a, you know, when we all sat in March, 
businesses, nonprofits, public sector is like, what are we going to do this year? What's it going to look like? And it sounds um, amazingly like you got a lot done despite. So please tell us. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, one of the highlights, again, as I said, we got more projects completed on a dollar basis than ever before in MTA history, over $7 billion of projects. A lot of that was ADA projects. One of the things that we've all been become more and more conscious of is that, that the, the transit system, which has, you know, 470 odd stations, is way behind where we would like it to be to have full accessibility under ADA and otherwise. Um, so w we knocked out 11 stations last year, um, and that was a high, that was as many as I think were done in the, the, the six or seven prior years altogether. So we, we really focused on, on ADA. We also looked at accelerating a variety of station projects because we could close down entrances. With less ridership, we could be more aggressive about closing down entrances. With the overnight closures that Sarah and the team at Transit instituted for in order to facilitate the cleaning, that incredible cleaning uh, uh, operation that gave New Yorkers a lot of confidence, uh, those who returned to the system, uh, we, were, we were able to extend outages, you know, to get much longer outages to get more work done, to give a contractor access to track or to stations uh, to do other work. Um, so it was, it was a mix of work, um, but a lot of it was, uh, as I said, ADA. A lot of the progress, it, 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 you know, we, we always talk about the transit system as we should, but the commuter railroads, we were able to get a huge amount of work done, especially on the Long Island Railroad third track project where we, you know, way ahead of schedule, eliminated eight grade crossings, which had historically been the source of all kinds of terrible auto accidents, including one that killed several people just barely a year ago. So eliminating grade crossings so that the railroad can run fast, and there are 200 trains running through that area every uh, every day, um, and making it, you know more efficient for people who live there, less noise, and so on and so on. So there was a ton of work done in transit, especially because Sarah was able to give us the outages to do work, but also on the commuter railroads as well. And so, Jano, just a dollar figure, and I want to sort of look to the future for a second. How much did you get out the door last year? Because one of the challenges um, with such needs um, and the throughput issue, we've talked about this before. How much did you get out the door last year? Well, what, I think you know this, Andrew, but I'll just repeat it because we at the beginning of the year when the capital program, the new 20 to 24 capital program was announced and set in motion at the beginning of 2020, we uh, aspired to do 13 billion of new contract awards. That's to say, do the procurement on 13 billion to keep up with, with the pace that we had set. In the end, we were only able to do 5 billion. Uh, five and a half billion, but it was nevertheless like I think the second or third biggest year the MTA had ever had in terms of new contract awards. Um, the challenge is now that again, thanks to Chuck Schumer um, and and others, we have secured the operating budget and the capital budget is starting to come back together. It's by no means there, but we have some more flexibility um, because we know we're going to be able to use, for example, uh, the internet sales tax component to bond um, more, uh, you know, uh, several billion dollars in the coming year, according to CFO Bob Ferran. Um, so, 
but we, you know, we're, we're, we're counting on being able to ramp up, but we, because we didn't know whether we're going to have to use all the capital money for operating at the second half of 2020, we basically shut down the pipeline other than federally funded projects. And now the challenge is to quickly get through procurement to get all this work that we had, we now are able to do um, thanks to the stabilization of the operating budget and to get out on the street and, and to, and to get it into construction. So we'll come back to the operating button in a second, but just one, one more, Jenna. So big picture, as we would have talked about, I don't know, what is it, 15 months ago, there was a $54 billion capital plan. There was around $18 billion from prior plans. So we're in the $70 billion range. As you said, the MTA is at maxed on 5 or $6 billion a year. And I can do the math. Six times five doesn't get you to 70. And now that the $54 billion plan is 15 billion congestion pricing, 10 billion on the sales tax and 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 um, uh, mansion tax yeah. enhancement. Um, you know, seven billion federal formula, three billion each from the state and the city, and 9.8 from the operating budget, whether it be pay as you go or or bonded. How much do you think you really have of that 54 billion available in the next four years? Well, I, th- I think. Then, I mean, how do you prioritize? Okay. Well, I, I, first of all, we have the, we have the federal money. We have the the, the the bridges and tunnels uh, funding from tolls. We have the state money that you alluded to, and the city money. I think we're we are have a high level of confidence is going to show up. And as I said earlier, um, the new piece that we have more, much more confidence in is um, that roughly twenty percent that was coming from bonding based on the internet sales tax and the mansion tax. That's the piece that has come back to the capital program most recently. But we're excited that. We have an administration that may, you know, we're hopeful is going to let us start to move forward on central business district tolling. So that which constituted 15 billion of that 55 billion that you just mentioned is certainly something that we're we're starting to be hopeful about. Um, and then the last, uh, I think, as you said, 20 percent of the program is, you know, MTA traditional uh, transportation revenue bonds or PAYGO capital, which is probably, which was always meant to be the last element of the program. So we're going to have to see if the the MTA's overall financial situation stabilizes. And, uh, you know, as the program evolves, we'll know how much of that we get. But that all equals right now we're at about 50 percent of the original program. And um, and we're hopeful that with positive federal action, not just on congestion pricing, but also on the Second Avenue subway, which is a big uh, grant that is pending before the feds has been there for years under the Trump administration, um, that we're going to get well into the second half of that $55 billion capital program goal. So do you have a prioritized list of those projects? Because it was, you know, as you say, you know, 50% of a big number is still a bigger number than, than you've had before. How have you prioritized those programs? Is there a list that we can be looking at? How do you how do you structure that? Well, I, and the first thing I have to say is that we work with the agencies in the dark days of COVID. We worked with the agencies on some you know, which were the downside scenarios. What do we have to do to maintain state of good repair, to make sure that the system doesn't degrade the way it did after, frankly, after the financial crisis? Um, not, you know, not so uh, you know, pretty recent memory. So that is always going to be the first priority, the safety projects and the state of good repair projects. You know, after that, we have ongoing important, you know, uh, expansion projects or improvement projects. 
and then we beyond that we've we prioritize among other things ADA uh, the ADA projects we want to continue to make project progress on that we resignaling which Sarah has been a leader in 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 thinking through and helping us to implement we want to make sure that we're continuing to resignal the the signals on many of these lines are 80 plus years old we cannot continue to maintain those and and maintain the system so those are among the priorities we also one project one expansion project we want to make sure we get going is pen access there's that running Metro North trains on the Amtrak Hellgate line through the Bronx will allow us to have four new stations in the East Bronx, which is a transit desert. Those people are trying to get to jobs in Midtown, takes them an hour and a half um, from Co-op City. They can't get to jobs in the suburbs like other people who are in the Bronx on the Metro North system. So we wanna make sure that that project, which was halfway through procurement when we stopped uh, for COVID is able to be resumed. That's a priority. No, I mean, it's quite a challenge because there are so many great needs and obviously state of good repair. It's always been a priority for all of us, not only because it it reduces, um, it, it increases the reliability of service, but it also reduces ongoing maintenance costs and, and, and a very high priority, a lot of issues there. Sarah, let's turn back to you. So the operating budget, amazingly, I mean, and, and um uh, John has mentioned uh, Senator Schumer and our, our, our delegation's um, amazing work in Washington. There's been, there was a $3.9 billion pot, then a $4 billion pot, then borrowing from the federal municipal liquidity facility, $2.9 billion, and then $6.5 billion more coming. And that has really stabilized the operating budget, obviously, as Jano said, allowing the capital program to move forward, but certainly giving you the runway to manage the system but then, you know, drops off a bit of a cliff. And I think it's 2024 where the structural gap of two, two and a half billion is then revealed without that. What are the opportunities for efficiency? How do you deal with running the system, given that you have that runway for a few years? And maybe that's the wrong analogy in some ways, but you have that runway for a few years. How can you increase efficiency in the system? And especially, as you said, you want to resume 100 percent service. Does that um, contradict that? Um efficiency needed at all? Well, look, first of all, that's a runway that I couldn't have even imagined having six months ago, nine months ago, even three months ago. I mean, the, and frankly, having worked in the federal government, it is it still to this moment blows my mind that we've been able to get the assistance that we've gotten from our, from our congressional delegation. And has there ever been a lesson that having, you know, an activist governor who cares about this stuff and having, you know, Chuck Schumer be the majority leader matters. I mean, it's just it, it, like New York, can't, I can't even like express what good shape we are in, uh, given our congressional delegation. So that's runway I didn't even think I would have. Um, but to your point, um, look, there are um, huge efficiencies that I think that we can continue to find um, at transit. Um, you know, just during the pandemic, you know, I talked about the the finding that, that the agency actually can turn on a dime when it needs to, and all credit to the workforce for being able to do that. But additionally, you know, we have started to find a lot of efficiencies in each sort of section of transit, whether it's maintenance of way or RTO or, uh, or you know, track or whatever the department is. And this is certainly absolutely no criticism of my predecessors, because I think every president that comes into transit, you know, is faced with sort of their own challenges. Um, and and um, but the challenge, some of the challenges I've been faced with is we need to find some efficiencies and we need to make sure that we're 
doing everything we can to keep this system uh, going on fewer resources than we've ever had before. And frankly, we found those efficiencies. We found ways to to become more, uh, you know, more effective, more efficient, and and to uh, build new processes into the way that we're doing things that I think uh, make us a better organization. So, um, you know, we're a long way from perfect now. We've got a long way to go, but I feel like we're making progress every day and becoming a more efficient organization. And to be honest, you know, we weren't particularly efficient for a long time. Uh, and that's not surprising, I think, to anyone who knows the MTA well and who uh, has 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 um, seen the way that we operate. We're getting better all the time. Uh, and and I'm certainly proud of the progress that we've made. But, um, you know, when I, when I say I want us to run full service, that doesn't mean that I don't think that we should be, um, you know, making adjustments to make sure that Jano can get everything done that he needs to get done. And look, my preference is, um, you know, to do single line outages for longer periods of time to make sure that Jano has the time and the space that he needs to get big projects done. And I think one of the things we found during the, the pandemic is that if you talk to New Yorkers like adults, if you explain the need to close down the system for certain periods of time because you're doing construction, you're doing really important and maintenance that's going to save them time and, and that's going to make their commute more efficient in the long run. People are adults and they can handle that news and they can work around it. You give them as much notice as possible and you say, please, you know, we're going to run shuttles and, and this is how we're going to help you get where you need to go over this period of three months or four months or whatever. Jano gets the space and time that he needs to be really efficient on his projects and the whole thing moves a lot better. So I, I absolutely am going to run full service and I'm going to make sure that everyone feels like they've got all the service they need to return to their commute, return to their workplace, but we're also going to be smart about the ways we get our capital work done. Thank you. Have you found um, have you found that there are any opportunities working with labor on the on the contract contractual work rules or other issues that actually need contractual changes that can increase efficiency even more? When we benchmarked, we looked at subway productivity overall and bus productivity, which were lower than the median of other large systems. And some of that might be um, structures of our, not just compensation, but actually the structures of our, our work rules in, in deployment. Is there anything that should be done on that side? Well, look, I'm not going to negotiate with our labor partners uh, in an open forum, of course, but um, but I guess I will just say that not everything lives in the contract, and I feel like, um, you know, by you know, meeting our labor partners halfway, we're finding efficiencies that, um, you know, aren't necessarily living in the contract, but that are making the entire place not only more efficient uh, for our customers, uh, but, you know, make things a little easier on the workforce as well. So there's a way to, to have the two groups come together, uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be negotiated within a contract. Thanks. And, and one other efficiency idea that other systems have done more of than we have in a limited one-person train operation. Have we considered whether there are more opportunities in New York for this? Uh, you know, I, look, I think it's always in the background because as technology makes these giant leaps forward, um, we know that that's, that that's on the horizon one day. It's certainly not something that I'm thinking about right now because it just feels like it's it's pretty far down the road. Um, and so, look, I think anyone in transit, anyone in rail uh, and freight rail has watched, you know, particularly in freight rail has watched PTC come online and passenger or watched PTC come online and knows that there are... Um, 
you know, for those systems that want to go to one person or, or even no person operation at some point, there are opportunities there. That's not something we're looking at. It's not something I'm looking at. I can't, <clears throat> excuse me, I can't really see a future for that at this moment in time, but certainly it's something that we should continue to you know, keep our eye on. Certainly. And let's talk a little about safety um, quickly before we talk about the future. This is, you know, let's first we'll talk about on the operating side and then Jano on, on the construction side. Um, what have you done to keep um, staff and riders safe? We know that it's a critical issue for people to feel safe on the subway. There's both crime and health. And, and, and sir, how is the progress there going? Are those concerns real? What should be done in the future? So look, we it, it's clear certainly to to those of us at the MTA that um, that people feeling confidence in the system, confidence in returning to the system is really important. And frankly, as we've done customer surveys over the last year, that's just been confirmed. I mean, these are numbers in the 60s and 70s, low 70s, high 70s of people saying my number one priority in the system is to make sure I feel safe from COVID, and my number two priority is to make sure that I feel safe from you know any kind of other incident whether it's crime or assault or or harassment. And so, you know, these are critical issues to our customers. And it it is incumbent on us to make sure that we're listening to those and that we are acting on those and we're making sure that our customers feel confidence. So on the cleaning front, it's not just making sure that the system is clean and safe and disinfected, but it's making sure that customers are seeing it. They have to have confidence as they're returning to their commute. So you don't just do the work, but you show your work, right? So everyone in the system is masked. It's the law. We're at 97, 90 98% mass compliance, which to this day blows my mind. And But, you know, we have traffic checkers and, and compliance folks out in the system every day looking and watching those faces and making sure. And we are 100% at 97, 98% compliance on people coming into the system with masks. Huge credit to the workforce for the way they've been able to clean the system. We're cleaning stations twice a day. We are cleaning cars three, four, five, six times a day. It's, it is really rare for me to be in a rail car uh, over the last, say, nine months and to see anything but, you know, a really, a really clean car, certainly a cleaner car than, than I had ever seen pre-pandemic. Um, look, the idea is um, we've got a whole bunch of people who have been using the system every single day throughout the pandemic. Those folks have no choice, right? They've been in the system. They've seen us at our, at our darkest days. They've stayed with us, and they're still with us today. As people come back to the system and dip their toe in their commute, as they contemplate coming back to the office, as they contemplate you know, using the system to go see family, to return to church, to return to civic life, um, we, we want them to look around and to say, this is a, an agency that has taken care of the system. Them. This is a workforce that's mindful of making sure that we're protected from COVID. And the, my fellow customers are all wearing masks. I feel safe here. That's on COVID. On crime, look, this is a real issue. The numbers have been going up for more than a year. Um, we absolutely need a stronger uniformed presence in the system. We've been very clear with the mayor, with City Hall, with the NYPD. We feel like we need folks to come back into the system. I would like to see um, a uniformed presence in every station and frankly, on every platform. Um, we're at a critical moment where people have to come back into the system and they have to feel like they're safe. And um, not only do they have to actually be safe, but they need to feel safe. This has been a lonely campaign. <laughs> There are not a lot of people out there willing to talk about the fact that we need 
a more significant uniformed presence in the system. Um, but for those of you who are contemplating coming back to the system yourself, bringing your workforce back, uh, bringing your employees back, I think this is a really important issue. And um, this system doesn't work unless everyone who is entering it feels like they are safe, whether those are essential workers who are going to work, kids going to school, parents putting their kids on a bus or on a subway, uh, you know, our elderly population using the system because it's the most reliable way for them to get around. It just doesn't work otherwise. And so, um, you know, it's it's a bit of a lonely campaign uh, for now, but I think it's critically important. And, you know, I've said for a long time, I feel like it's my job and my responsibility to make sure that people are safe from the moment they enter the system until the moment they leave the system. And, uh, and, and that's going to continue to sort of be my mantra uh, as long as I'm in this job. And so uh, I think that the way that we keep people safer is, is to have more mental health resources in the system and a more of a uniformed presence in the system. And I think that's going to get us over uh, the hump where we need to be. Thank you. Th thank you. Critical issue. Jano, in terms of safety of the workers um, doing construction, there was obviously, you know, different protocols and we'll see how they evolve. Do you anticipate safety, uh, um, safety protocols increasing the cost of your capital plan? Not. In fact, it, it's one way to manage cost. If you have a great safety record and that's just good construction practice, it's rule one of construction that people have to operate safely for themselves and for everybody around who's operating, who's, who's around these facilities, um, but mostly for the construction workers themselves. But the ultimate goal is not only safety of the workforce and making sure everybody goes home every day, um, but Ultimately, that'll reduce your insurance costs. And frankly, insurance is a huge issue in New York. We have a complicated uh, regulatory system that has, for whatever set of reasons, has led New York's construction insurance to be among the very highest. And I was struggling with this when I was in the private sector when we were looking, among other things, for terrorism insurance. Uh, and, uh, uh, but it's really acute in the construction environment in New York, and, and we, need to, we need to be creative uh, and bring people together to address that element of our costs. But, you know, it, going slightly more broadly, Andrew, I, I would say that we are making progress on construction costs and on project costs. Um, you know, it, it's no secret that you know, I worked with uh, a couple of key board members, uh, in, in, including Scott Reckler, who's now the chairman of the RPA and, and a knowledgeable developer and builder himself, um, to come up with what we call a cost containment initiative, changing all of the MTA contracts to eliminate disincentives for contractors to participate. All, during COVID, one benefit of COVID is that, as Sarah said, we turned on a dime and immediately instituted fully electronic procurement, which the MTA had been rather slow in adapting to. It was crazy that contractors were having to walk in boxes of proposals instead of doing things that you know you could do on your Amazon screen and just you know, push with a single button. Um, so we've had some success. We, 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 the, the eight ADA stations we, bit, we, we awarded at the end of last year were fully 40% below the number that was in the capital program, which is a, a projection, but it was the, the number, the cost for those stations was way below. We finished the Rutgers project, which is like the L train project, but it was the F train tunnel, the last of the Sandy tunnels that need to be completed. It was finished this week on time, 
on budget, um, and it was originally awarded less below its projected costs. And we did that in eight months. And again, kudos to Sarah and the team at Transit for giving us those night and weekend outages that made it possible. So we're making progress on the the construction cost side, as well as just getting more work done. And, and, and we will continue to focus on that, as well as the safety aspect of that equation. Thank you. Thank you. And it's critically important, as we know, I, I just looked the other day at the Eastside access from a twinkle in an eye to the final um, cost is is a multiple factor, and that's exactly one of the one of the problems. Not only do you have ambitious capital program and needs, if they inflate um, by delays or um, cost in, cost overruns, it, it will be even more challenging. Um, let's quickly we want to get to questions, reminding people they can use the QA function, but just quickly one or two things about the future because we know. That ridership is, according to the McKinsey study, coming back 90 to 80 to 90 percent. We'll see what actually happens. We know that we have new technologies. We have um, telecommuting um, will happen. We have car sharing, autonomous vehicles, um, micro transit, bikes. These will all affect demand and usage patterns. Just quickly, one or two things that you are doing differently because the future will not be the same as um, current. Sarah, if we could turn to you quickly, and then Jano. Well, you know, I know a lot of people are telecommuting. I'm not. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, the vast majority of, um, I, look, I think, I'll be honest, I think that the thought that um, people aren't going to come back to the office and that the future is working from home is actually uh, not accurate. Um, I think we're in a moment where people are working from home, but people want to come back. They want to come back. And I'm not saying they necessarily miss their commute, but I think many people do. But, um, you know, folks want to come back to a civic center, to um, seeing their colleagues, to being out of the house, to, um, you know, sending their kids to school and going off to the office themselves or going off to the workplace themselves and then and then coming back um, at night. So, I, look, I think that we're sort of overthinking, um, you know, what, will people come back or not? I absolutely believe that they will. And that's that's one of the reasons why we have to be ready for them to come back. We can't fix a lot of this stuff once people start to contemplate coming back. We've got to fix it now, and we have to have a system that's safe and ready for people to come back. So, you know, look, will will things be different forever? I, I think so. Look, I think people who never telecommuted will, will consider telecommuting once or twice a week. Um, so I think the patterns will change and the city will change. But generally, I think, you know, I think that the... Uh, the sort of panic about people not coming back to uh, to the city is is a bit overblown. Um, that's my my two Thank cents. Thank you. And, and Jano, is there anything yeah. that we should plan for differently? As you know, transit modes are going to change. Um, there are lots of different technologies, not just the telecommuting issues that Sarah mentioned, but you know, people are changing how the, how they how they move around. Well, uh, you know, I think technology is becoming. You know, has made. Uh, inroads in our work in an important way, but I don't think it's exclusively the telecommuting aspect of working from home. We manage projects remotely all through, uh, all through the, the COVID pandemic using GoPro uh, video technologies to inspect work or to participate in factory acceptance testing for systems where our folks couldn't travel, right? Um, that we, we developed apps for reporting on projects remotely, especially the safety compliance aspect of thing, and we did that very quickly. So we can incorporate 
I, you know, we can incorporate technology in improving our work and our execution to get more work done, to get it done more efficiently and at, at a lower cost. So that's something that's changed from my construction standpoint. But I do think that, you know, there are a couple things that we have to focus, we ought to focus on. One is transit-oriented development becomes more important um, if we're trying to manage, uh, you know, how many different uh, elements of a trip people need to take. It becomes more important to think about how to use, uh, how to have a, a transit-friendly or climate, more climate-friendly pattern of development throughout the region. You want to make sure that people don't have to resort to cars, that they can use the mass transit system um, and take advantage and have fast travel um, because they're, you know, how more housing is placed on transit lines or in proximity to transit lines. So those those last mile, what they call the last mile piece of a, a trip can be manageable uh, in, 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 uh, uh, in space. Um, and, um, you know, one of those aspects is, you know, we went through this at the World Trade Center is, is thinking about making sure that we, uh, we leverage our best mass transit facilities like the concentration of transit in lower Manhattan and the concentration around Penn Station. It's no secret that we're, we're you know, the ESD is starting to think about how to have a transit oriented development plan around Penn Station. If we're going to invest in Penn Station and dealing with the reality of its continued growth and the region's continued growth, um, to make sure you put the jobs right next to the best mass transit. So I think in, um, it's not all, as, as Sarah said, it's not all about assuming we're just having telecommuting and everybody's working from home in their pajamas. It's really about making sure that we can have, you know, efficient, fast, climate-friendly mass transit travel to and from work as part of, and a development pattern that supports that. Certainly. Thank you very much. I mean, I'm hearing a lot of optimism and good lessons learned that should help the future. Um, let's turn to some questions we have here. Um, um, as I said, and, and this first question, costs are not sustainable when the federal money ends. 24-hour service with a question mark, which I assume means, um, can we really afford 24-hour service when we have a structural deficit that right now is being masked by, by the federal aid? Sarah? Well, look, the, the reality is, is when we're not running 24-hour service, we we on the subway, we are running 24-hour service elsewhere. So, you know, the bus system continues to operate. We've got folks riding buses, and those are not inexpensive. And so, um, so if it's if it's purely a, you know, are you saving so much on the subway side by being closed overnight? That's not. I wouldn't frame it that way. Uh, but look, as the city comes back, we've got to become a 24-hour system again. And I, I think that everyone um, believes that that's that's the right thing to do, and and that's the right answer for the city. And I think we're we're rapidly approaching a point where, where we'll be able to get there. Thank you. And Jano, could you comment as to the dollar amount of new capital plan is necessary to keep the system in a state of good report, repair and mandatory compliance versus wish, wish list items? So how do you divide the capital plan dollar uh, You know, it's, it's probably, uh, it, it, I can't give you an exact uh, reading on that, but when we were looking at this, Sarah, I think that we were we believe that the bottom bottom line was, you know, roughly half of, you know, or more of the capital pro program was devoted in, in transit, at least, was devoted to state of good repair. And, I mean, obviously, there's some big 
projects like Second Avenue Subway uh, in the capital program, but at least half is state of good repair, which does not mean that in one capital program you accomplish that, you know, that mythical goal of state of re reaching state of good repair, but at least half and probably more of it is state of good repair oriented work, track signals, other systems, safety pr uh, provisions, just maintaining the structure of the of the system so we don't have um, you know the ceiling cave in like it once did at Borough Hall not too long ago. Um, those are there's a roughly 50% or more, but I, I wouldn't swear to the number and uh, that's a rough estimate. Thank you, thank you. We'll stay with you for a second. Um, General, you mentioned the need for an economic model that can withstand shocks like the one we just went through. What does that model look like? I assume this refers back to fares being, um, you know, half of fare and tolls being half of the uh, um, of the revenue structure. What, what does it look like? I'm going to resort to Pat Foy's standard answer, which is the MTA is not is indifferent to the sources and the exact form of support it gets from our various governmental partners and so on. Uh, my point, Andrew, was merely that you know our financial structure, which is you know dependent on ridership on the one hand and economic activity on the other hand, placed us somewhat at risk for the type of crisis that we have experienced in the last year. And maybe more than other systems, which are uh, have a, a structurally, uh, a, you know, a financial support coming from a different mix of uh, of programs and sources. So I am not recommending any particular uh, approach. Uh, it's just that it, you know, the last year has highlighted this particular issue in our financial strategy collectively. No, I, I appreciate that. I think in every crisis, I spent 15 years in public health and healthcare, and every crisis we learn um, how to better prepare for the next crisis. But we also learn that that maybe we didn't plan for the next one. We learned at the blackout that all the stuff we had electronically wasn't as useful as we thought. This is the challenge, and we need to think about our rainy day funds in broader broader ways and think about it differently. Um, Sarah, a question came through about the um, workers who are cleaning the systems, and there have been questions about those those contracts for the workers who have been cleaning those systems. Can you speak to um, a, a little about that? Sure, absolutely. So the system and the and and our cars are cleaned by two groups. Uh, one is um, MTA employees, long time, you know. M workforce uh, cleaners who work for New York City Transit. And then we've also gone to some contractors to assist with uh, with cleaning over the last, I don't know, call it 10 months or so. Um, and, you know, every contractor, every vendor that we're using, you know, obviously meets uh, the, the rule of law in terms of being able to work with us. We, I've seen the same complaints that your questioner has as well. Um, we have um, folks who are constantly monitoring these contractors and these vendors to make sure that they're following all the rules and regulations that are in place, not just for anyone working in the city or the state, but working for uh, a state agency like ours. And in, in every, cases, every case we've seen, we've found that they're complying with the law. So look, I think there is... I think it's absolutely fair for uh, for workers to be saying that they would, you know, that they want changes and from their own uh, from their own employer, and and that's that's fair. But as far as we can tell, as we look at these vendors, they've been in compliance, and uh, and and you know, we'll continue to keep a close eye on it. 
Thanks. So, thank you very much, Sarah. Well, let's stay with you for a second. Is there a cost-effective way to improve Accessoride? You know, there there was a you know there was a pilot which was we found much more convenient, cost less, cost less on a unit cost basis, but the demand went went through the roof, reasonably so. And so now it's kind of been extended, but on a limited basis cap. Is there a cost-effective way to um, increase success to improve Accessoride? I think there is. I mean, look, I think, um, you know, as we, the reality is, is the blue and whites, you know, the, the, the blue and white vans that you see all over the city are um, a really expensive way to provide service. And sometimes they're the absolute necessary way and they're the right way because uh, of the needs of, of um, the person who's, who um, is, you know, is taking the trip. Uh, but sometimes, you know, the blue and whites specifically are not needed. And we also find that, you know, folks who are in this program don't necessarily want the blue and the whites. They want, you know, a cab or, um, you know, just a regular vehicle. And so um, I think that we can do a lot to improve um, cost effectiveness in AAR. Uh, we also, look, we're, we're long overdue on some tech solutions there. Uh, for years, we've been trying to build a tech solution uh, for uh, our paratransit department that, you know, is, is way too far behind at this point, And I'm not sure is actually the modern solution that we need. So I think there's lots of changes we can make there. And, you know, it's just, um, you know, it, 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 we need, um, you know, we need to take a breath for a minute and decide what we want the system to look like and what we want the service to look like and what we can afford and how we can get there in the most uh, efficient way and then start executing. I'm not sure that paratransit has gotten the attention that it needs over the last couple of years. Does, does, um, um, ADA compliance stations improve improve that um, opportunity as you can get people to more stations around the system? I believe so. Yeah, look, I mean, if we can get folks who are using um, paratransit to, you know, take the, the vehicle to an accessible station and then go from there, that's great. But look, at, at the reality is, is we don't have enough stations at this point to um, to check that box. And we have found that, um, you know, and, and by the way, not everyone using the system, not only everyone using the service, that's going to work for them necessarily. Um, but for those that it does work for, I absolutely think that's something that we should be pushing, but we're not there yet. And I wouldn't push it until we're at a point where I would feel comfortable with the number of accessible stations we've got. Certainly. That's where, you know, that's why it's so great to have both of you here, because anybody who thinks that these are disconnected um, operations is, is living under a total illusion. They, they succeed and fail together. Jano, if we could turn to you for a second, speaking of this, why isn't fixing the signal system the number one priority for capital projects far more important than cosmetic or station projects? Well, we have made it a, a top priority. Nowhere, never before, in addition to the fact that we completed more stations last year than ever before in, 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 the, MTA, in the MTA's history, we have a 70-station goal for the current for the 2020 to 24 capital program, which is way, way, way beyond what the MTA has ever attempted, and a huge investment in the capital program, over $5 billion to, to accomplish it. So, um, and, and we are using new technology. We're introducing new construction approaches to try to manage the cost so we can do even more stations in the future. So it has been made a huge priority and it was one of the signature uh, elements of the, the, the capital program. Um, and, you know, I think that the, the, um, uh, the competition between, uh, co there, the, there may be a, a fallacy built into the question I would take issue with because we're not 
doing cosmetic improvements of stations as an alternative to ADA. We've made a huge commitment to ADA, which is going to stretch the contracting community and the elevator manufacturing community's abilities. Um, and you know, we do some station modify, what they call station renewals, but a lot of the time that's replacing existing escalators, replacing existing um, stairways and maintaining the structure of that station. So we're not prioritizing cosmetic improvements in any way. To the contrary, we're really prioritizing ADA and the basic functionality of stations. Thank you. And I think we have time for one last question, wanting to be respectful of your time um, and everyone's time today. Um, and I'm not sure who this goes to, maybe both of you. What is the MTA's position on expanding bus service, dedicated bus lanes, and partnerships with private service providers to address transit deserts and transportation in the outer boroughs? I'm, ha I'm happy to take it. Um, you know, we said at the beginning uh, of this pandemic that this was a good opportunity to expand bus lanes, to put more uh, miles of bus lanes in. Um, you know, the city has has stepped up and and certainly uh, gotten part of the way there, but they they haven't done as much as we'd like. And look, this is this is a huge opportunity. Um, if we can get buses moving faster in this city, uh, the whole the whole system works better, right? Um, traffic will move faster. We cannot have buses stuck in congestion. We just cannot go back to the old pre-pandemic, you know, way of, of the bus just, you know, anyone on foot beating the bus by a mile. Uh, and so, you know, if we can get the city to, you know, to, to be more aggressive on, um, on installing bus lanes, and if we ourselves can continue to be really aggressive on installing bus lane cameras so that we are aggressively, you know, no offense to those of you who, who are getting these tickets, but but frankly, you deserve them. Uh, if we can be more aggressive at make, about making sure that we're ticketing the folks who are sitting in bus lanes and causing, you know, all of those folks on the bus uh, to be late to where they're going, you know, we'll find ourselves in a much better place in terms of keeping the city moving and keeping the folks who are depending on the bus uh, getting where they're going. And, and the position on using private companies to provide some of that bus service? Not something that I've, I've been looking at now, uh, but, you know, certainly, it, you know, maybe a discussion, but certainly not something I'm looking at at this moment. Well, you know, I will say the list of questions keeps coming in, uh, and that's because the issue is so important and what you um, both of you are doing and what your colleagues are doing for New York City um, and the region. Um, I, should admit, I should also say, and thank you very much, Jenna, for talking about transit-oriented development, which is not just about transit, but about housing, about affordability, everything. So thank you both for what, what you're doing for New York City, for the region. Um, and I, I appreciate your time this morning. If you have any last comments to leave us with that so we should be thinking with, we welcome them, and then we can send everyone on their way. Um, Jano, any, any last thoughts? I, I just want to say that it, that... I think we're all excited to have normal life return. And, and we hope that the spirit of, you know, that everyone's enthusiasm about the performance of the MTA and, and Sarah's workforce and the railroad workforces um, continues on to the sense of purpose that we have to make sure the transit system is super high functioning because it's essential to the region's business model and to our economic revival. And, and we need everybody, especially like, groups like yours to to help shoulder the burden to keep folks you know, everybody focused on rebuilding this system so we can be there for our our collective future and sarah any last thoughts yeah, I would just say, look, many of you are employers yourselves. Uh, you know, it's as you 
come back as you bring your employers back. You know, please remind them that the system, uh, you know, is here for um, is here for them. And we've done great work over the last year in making sure that we're doing everything that we can to be here as the city, uh, to be here to meet the city as it returns. And so, as you you know return to your commute, as your employees return to their commute, they're going to find a system that is you know safe and clean and sanitized and disinfected and uh, uh, fellow riders who are wearing masks and a presence, uh, a uniformed presence that um, ensures a bit more safety. And we walk, we look forward to welcoming people back. You know, thank, thank you very much for that. I think that's, those are very important thoughts. We're all in the future together. Um, and thank you for being good partners. Now, listen, you know, we see, we know that the capital plan needs to be prioritized and CBC will continue to, you know, push on making sure those costs are, are as efficient as possible, those projects are prioritized. Of course, um, Sarah, on the operating side, we see those deficits in the future. We're going to, of course, keep sharing our ideas and pushing for efficiencies because we don't know how the future looks. And, and although it's wonderful to hear your optimism, there's still a lot of hard work to um, be done. So thank you for being great partners and listening to our thoughts and, and we'll keep them coming and we'll keep uh, um, sharing those with you and hopefully together improving the system for all of us and all of New Yorkers. So thank you all. And thank you all for being here today. We really appreciate your time and your support of the CBC. Take care. Thank you.